Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio. Learn more about us at www.21stCenturyRadio.com. Tonight, we're going to look at haunted Maryland, ghosts, and strange phenomena of the old state line. And, Ed, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, particularly around Halloween. We try to do this with you annually almost. Now, I think on my show and Dr. Bob's. Yes, thank you very much. Talk to us a little bit about how you got involved in the pursuit of all of these, sort of the unusual, the paranormal, the haunted, the weird monsters, ghosts in the sky. Um, A bit of an accident. I was a a writer for a newspaper out of Wilmington, Delaware, and interviewed a storyteller. Thought it was neat, so took a course and started doing storytelling for adult audiences. And whether it was Valentine's Day, um, July 4th, St. Patrick's Day, or Christmas, they all asked for ghost stories. Um, and I only had about three ghost stories at the time, so I tried to find some other ghost stories. And in that search to find ghost stories that were local as opposed to buying books from California and Chicago and Virginia, I um, started to seek them out in the um, Delmarva Peninsula and the state of Maryland area, and that was in 94, and I'm still doing it and have numerous scores of leads I can't even get to. So there's plenty of material, and, and that was the accidental meeting of this storyteller that got me into this. It's always interested me how people are drawn into the paranormal, whether it was something they were interested in as children or, as you say, you know, as a reporter, you're finding facts and telling about them. When you then listen to people's stories, you know, it's the same thing when people are investigating UFO sightings or Bigfoot or Sasquatch or Chessie. How do you sort of, people always just ask me that, you know, when I did news and reporting, whistleblowing, how did I know when someone was telling the truth? Uh, that's a good one. Um, I mean, I've had everything from the most bizarre and obvious things that, that were certainly fabricated to things that make you think, well, maybe there is something to this. When, when you're dealing with ghosts and the paranormal and oral history, a lot of judgment based on the credibility has to come into account. Uh, of course, if you're interviewing a police officer who had an experience or a nurse in a hospital, you know, their line of work, lends you to you know have a sense that that they're pretty well in terms of observation but 
a lot of the stories, frankly, are passed down, and there's no way to prove that they're true unless you can find some historical link. And in, in Maryland and other places on the Eastern Shore, that tends to come up at times, and that's when it's very satisfying. Well, and I have to say, in reading your work, I've been reading Haunted Maryland this evening, Ghosts and Strange Phenomena of the Old Line State. So given that we open the show with that wonderful song about ghost riders in the sky, of course, you have a story in Haunted Maryland called Soldiers Sighted in the Sky. Yeah, that was a, a bit of a bizarre uh, story passed on to me by a um, former state archaeologist or an archaeologist in the state of, of uh, Maryland. Um, it was taken from a newspaper report, and I'm trying to find it in the book, but you might have it there. Page 12. Um, page 12? Uh-huh. Okay, thanks. Sure. Um, well, I, you know, I always wonder because being an author myself, and when you get away from a book you've written, particularly if you write many books, Sometimes, you know, people go, oh, well, didn't you write it? Can't you remember what you wrote? Exactly. But it, you get so overwhelmed by the volume of stories, I imagine, that, okay, so folks, don't take it personally. We're going to pass pages. Yeah, it's not fine. cheating. This is helping. It is helping because when, when you have about 60 stories in this uh, Haunted Maryland book, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to try and find. Um, that was taken pretty much from a uh, newspaper report uh, in 1881 in a Wilmington, Delaware newspaper of... Um, People who looked in the sky and saw what they thought were apparitions or images in the in the clouds or in the um, in the uh, horizon of marching soldiers. But the strange thing about it is, now this was Victorian period of time, um, that it was um, also reported in Oxford, Maryland, in Royal Oak, Maryland, um, in Talbot County, and all the way down into Cambridge and Sussex County, Delaware, all at the same time. So these reports came from various sources, and essentially it was children and people actually came out of their houses, it says in the reports, to look at this assortment of people marching in white robes with helmets. Um, you know, it was just a bizarre type of thing, and maybe it was you know, an atmospheric uh, cause. You know, atmosphere might have caused it, but still having it seen by so many different locales, it just was a quirky thing that I wanted to include. Well, and, uh, I, and I think your point about saying, you know, when you can follow up, and you often do, you follow up with either a Baltimore Sun story or some other newspaper that has covered the either the, the local tale or the local witnessing. And that's helpful, and also, because um, that gives you a sense of satisfaction when someone tells you something and then you go and you find some documents that I mean, maybe a, a murder did occur at that house or there was some type of battle and it was built on an old Indian burial site, then that's what makes everything click. Now, that doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's certainly satisfying. Um, can I give you just one quick example? Please do. Um, Cecil County, Maryland, there was uh, they built a new jail on a peninsula between the, the Big Elk Creek and the Little Elk Creek. And... Um, after the jail was built, a prisoner came in and said that he wanted his jail, his jail cell changed, and he persisted on it, and he was embarrassed to tell him why, and he told him that there was an Indian sitting on top of him from 2 or 3 in the morning till sunrise when it disappeared, and they thought he was crazy until another, um, well, uh, you know, another inmate, the same right? Thing, right. And, um, they eventually We're all put, inmates here of right, one sort well, they, or another. They, Some are more severely locked up than others. Some are locked true. inside their skin. <laughs> anyway. Well, what they ended up doing is finding out that they built the, uh, the jail over an Indian burial site. Mm -hmm. It was a, a meeting of these two creeks that the Indians used as a trading post and burial site. And they moved about six or seven of the Indian graves away, but they had already poured the foundations. So, you know, they sealed some of the bones up under the jail. Now, there was no way that the inmates would have known that. 
And when you get a quirky thing like that, that's when you find possibly a neat historic reason for the you know supposed haunting, and that sort of pulls the story together. And as I said, it doesn't happen all the time. Uh, but when that does, it's satisfying. I mean, there, were, there was a story you told on page 87 about the floating coffin of Hooper Island. And if you're just joining us, I'm Zoe Hieronymus. Ed Ekonowitz is our guest. He is an author and publisher. All right, so the floating coffin of Hooper Island. Yeah, that was one of those um, stories passed down for generations, and it was reported in the uh, Baltimore Sun. When I did the, the work on this book, you know, you couldn't possibly go to every one single site in the state and do this. So there were a significant number of actual interviews in person, and others were document research in the Enoch Pratt, Maryland room. And uh, this one came up more than one time about a, a, uh, um, a uh, waterman who happened to be trapped in his home near during a, uh, uh, the, says here, the great storm of 18, or ni- 1933. But I must say this thing has been repeated for several hurricanes that have come up the uh, bay. So it wasn't just that one where this story occurred, they say. Uh, anyway, he was trapped inside his uh, home, and he, he heard uh, the water was getting to the first floor then he went to the second floor the water was ascending and he was trapped forever and he heard a banging at the second floor he opened the window the water rushed in and in comes a coffin he jumps on the coffin and luckily he says that he floated the on the coffin to the next island where he ended up um you know going getting to safety and then he looked and uh on the top of the coffin, and it was his dead wife's coffin with her name burned in the lid, and he said, thanks, old woman, you took care of me again, or something wow. like that. But um, a neat old folk tale, um, how much truth in it, who's to know, but you've got to have some of those in there to you know, sort of exemplify the passing down of, of old-fashioned stories. Well, and, and I th- well, you know, you look at our sacred traditions throughout all of the world, and if it weren't for our old traditions, much of what is sacred would have been lost. So whether it's a local tale of hauntings or a sacred society's lineage of ritual, the oral tradition is really what I think has kept the generations from one generation to the other in touch with the past. Obviously, we have the printed word, and now we have the Internet, but still there's something very different about telling versus reading. Share with us when you go around, and I know you talk to groups, you talk to children, you talk to adults. How would you describe the difference between the child or the youth community that you talk to and the adult community with the kinds of questions they ask? Um, I would say that the interest is certainly there in, or at least the ones that come to a, a presentation. Um, the, the interest in there is, is Interest is there in hearing stories. It's nothing that's disappeared because, um, you know, they still get them through television and, and, and even radio, but the in-person presentation is really satisfying. Um, I do presentations for ages, say, 10 and above, and particularly this time of year, families, where parents can come with their children together, and it's really satisfying to see them both be interested. But sometimes kids have... Very excellent questions, and oftentimes the kids pick up mistakes that uh, I, as a teller, sometimes make, and will ask the question very blatantly. You know, you said his name was John throughout the story, but how come Jim was the one at the end? And uh-huh, you know, and uh-huh. it's very, and the honesty of the kids—it's it, sort of neat, and it also shows their attentiveness as well. Um, 
you know, I think there's there's certainly an interest in hearing stories, but you know what really sets them off and makes them in, really good is when you do it in a setting that's historic and eerie. It, it's not not the sterile classroom, even though that works when you come in to talk to them, but at a historic site, at an old mansion. Um, I do work at a Civil War prison in the middle of the Delaware River. It's a, on an island, and it held 33,000 Confederates, much parallel point lookout that held you know 55,000 Confederates in Maryland. And when you take people in a Civil War site and tell them the stories there, the atmosphere just increases the uh, interest, the sensitivity, and the possibility that there might be something to it. That's when it's really fun and neat. And, of course, somebody in the audience is probably thinking, all right, this guy writes all these stories. People tell him stories. He looks up stories. So do you have any of your own, like things that have happened to you as a result now of your awareness? There's nothing that happened to me as a result of doing hundreds of interviews and, and writing, I guess, hundreds of stories now since 94 about this topic. Um, I, I guess part of the interest I have in this is, is sort of, you know, from my birth. I was born the day before Halloween. Okay. So you can imagine back in the 50s, every single birthday party right. was a costume <laughs> Halloween party, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, so, and that persisted, you know, uh, having a holiday or, excuse me, a birthday at that time of year sort of rubs off on you. It just has to. Um, but... Um, the only experience I had, and I, sometimes I'm hesitant to tell this, but it's it sort of... We won't you know, tell anybody. Just well, tell me. It's, it's, it's unusual. My father died when I was somewhat young, uh, in my 20s. And uh, we lived in a row house in, in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and I went back to visit my mother about two weeks after the uh, funeral. Parked on the side of the house, got out, and turned my head. And there was a man walking across the street, thin frame, 20 feet from me, Turned to me, looked at me, I swear it was my father's head on this guy. Mm-hmm. Now, people would say, oh, sure, you know, father died back at the house two weeks ago. That's true, and I agree with that, except my wife got out of the car at the same time. Before I could say anything, she says to me, your father's head was on that guy. Now, that was the only thing that ever happened, but it was as vivid as uh, can be. I could see it to this day. Is there something to it? You know, who's to know? Certainly the stories I hear from people are much more entertaining and in-depth than what I just gave you. But, but I think what you just you know. described, actually, is is a common, while perhaps unusual, um, experience that people have of their loved ones who have crossed over and mm-hmm. seeing them, hearing them, smelling their perfume, finding sure. things on their pillow at night that could only have come from them. I mean, they're just amazing. And, and I think for myself, you know, I always saw weird things when I was little, and I see weird things as an adult, too. And so it's always interests me when people such as yourself um, have made a commitment to collect and tell these stories, but but don't necess- aren't necessarily clairvoyant or clairaudient. And so what do you think, after listening to all these tales and telling all these stories, and there's certainly many more we'll share this evening and hopefully hear some of our own listeners' stories, what do you think is actually happening? Because you did mention, you know, well, maybe it's a place where somebody died or somebody was killed. And certainly 21st Century Radio has done many, you know, serious shows about paranormal right. um, phenomena. But what's your experience of what you think is taking place? What do I think? I have, uh, well, let me make a quick distinction. There are there people like myself and, and in regions throughout the country that do the same thing. We write about ghost stories and legends and folklore, mm-hmm. um, but we don't do the ghost hunting. We don't do the high tech, the right. you know EVP and all that stuff. Uh, to be honest, I have no interest in that at all. And my fear is that the emphasis on technology might somehow, you know, if they ever capture a ghost in a bottle, 
or something paranormal. They don't have to go so far. All you have to do is open your eyes, walk out in the street, and they're there. Well, the thing is, is the mystery is gone, and that's what is the fascination with this topic. People, not just at Halloween, people want to see beyond or want to think there's something beyond the trees. And I think that some people are gifted, and I don't know if they have a sense to uh, discern or feel or the presence of aliens, angels, or what we call ghosts or spirits. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I can't make that distinction, but I, I will not deny that some people certainly have the gift to see things to and, and everybody things. can cultivate it you know i've yes so it's, it is it is something that all of us are endowed with because we're made of eternal light so to speak and everything is an energy so look um, we're going to take a little break speaking okay, of energy fine. i'm going to get some energetic water and we'll be right back our guest is ed Akonowitz. find out about his books including annapolis ghost history mystery legends and lore find more about our guests on the facebook page for 21st century radio don't go away we'll be right back with more after this hello i'm dr diane corcoran i am the president emeritus of IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Thank you for staying with us. I'm your host, Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and we return now to our guest. I, I wondered about, you have these wonderful stories that all take place, for instance, in Ellicott City. And because we have certain areas that have gone through the Revolutionary War and date back to the 1600s, th- uh, there's obviously, as you've shown in your books, layers of experience with certain tales. Talk to us a, a little bit about those things going on in Ellicott City. Well, the Ellicott City tales were um, actually given to me by a friend of mine named Troy Taylor, who did investigations in that area. Troy is from the Midwest and specializes in ghost stories in the Chicago area. So I did not specifically visit Ellicott City for these ghost tales. Um, The stories have been around forever, and many of them include old mansions that uh, had been passed down for many years, and the original owners are supposed to inhabit or at least have some energy or presence in those buildings. Exactly. Um, One of them, actually, when I called the woman at the... um, there was the county, um, the count, main county's main office there. Um, told me that um, I said, is, it, "Is the place still haunted?" Because there's been a lot of writings about it. And she says, "Well, there do uh, strange things do continue to happen here." And in one of these buildings, it had to do with distinct number of smells that occur in the building. Uh, you know, lights turning on and off themselves. Right, and the lights going on and off, and uh, and the smells that persist over a long period of time. Um, but because that was one of the very first railroad stops in the in the country, actually, um, that place has been active with travelers passing through for a long period of time, and it's one of the places that really started ghost tours in the uh, in the region long before they become very popular. Today, you can go to practically any major historic city in the country and find ghost tours. But Ellicott City has had these ghost tours running a lot longer than anywhere else. Yeah, that one was at Oaklawn, or also called the Hayden House. And when you, are there some special stories you'd like to pick out yourself of either Haunted Maryland or the Annapolis Ghosts? Well, you know, the Annapolis Ghost um, is, exemplifies, I guess, that's the other book, uh, the connection, well, even though in Haunted Maryland it's persistent too, is the strong connection between history and ghost stories, history and folklore. Um, the very best Ghost stories, even though there are a number passed down through generations that are of a family type, the the ones that uh, 
attract a lot of attention are the ones related to historic sites and historic homes. And as I go in schools a lot, I tell the kids at the end of the program, the main question is, that you know, do you remember, and, and Shay should remember, that history is the strongest link with ghost stories. And when we started talking earlier tonight, I, I guess I wanted to point out that this stuff that occurs at Halloween with uh, the, the peak, I guess, of the interest in the paranormal, um, it, it really began as a way to teach history. When you can entertain youngsters in even the days around campfires and, and one-room schoolhouses about history by telling them there was a headless horseman, they're going to listen a lot more and pick up the facts and information. And Annapolis probably has that, and Baltimore, to be honest, significantly with the the tragic deaths in the in the dome of the Capitol, with Poe's grave in Annapolis, with the constellation of Fort McHenry. Every everywhere you look and, and see these historic sites, you've got the link with the folklore and the ghost stories. And in those two cities, it was really apparent throughout. You have this wonderful one of the Phantom Funeral Procession that involves oh, yeah. um, Governor Eden. Yeah, that was a, that was that came up. Boy, that came up in terms of people telling me about it, and then in at least three publications or four publications over the years, dating back all the way to the early 1900s, and essentially Governor Eden was uh, the last royal governor of, uh, of Maryland, and then he got run out of town at the time of the Revolution. Then after the Revolution was over, he came back, and he had all these friends there from the old days when he worked for King George, and they sort of you know had a friendly relationship, but then when he died the people in town thought his friends, maybe we were to get this guy out of town quietly because the, you know, uh, colonists who were, you know, a part of the rebellion will, you know, tear this guy's grave apart. So they snuck him out of town at at night, taking him down Shipwright Street, which is a long incline heading right to the water. There's a ship waiting, and they take him off and bury him somewhere else. Then they dig him up about 50 years later and bring him back to the center of town. But the legend is that on Shipwright Street, his slaves with, you know, no shoes and the flapping of their feet and the lanterns roam down Shipwright Street and take him into a phantom boat at the water on certain nights under a full moon. Well, you know, how much of that is true, who's to say? But it sort of exemplifies that. Well, it's a good thing to show the history and how it continues along, and that was one of the fun ones to find. Well, you also talk about, and it is traditional, particularly with the older colleges and universities, Mm. the Whistler and other hauntings at St. John's College. Yeah, St. John's has been around. You know, Francis Scott Key went there, and that's what I really got. When I started doing the Annapolis book, I was I was really. Um, and when I went to do the Baltimore Ghost book, Poe House, uh, you know, Constellation, all of the, the museum uh, curators were open arms to. It. I mean, they right. were really Babe nice. Babe Ruth you know, Museum, very nice, you know. Um, and then I went down to Annapolis, and everybody kept turning me down. <laughs> well, that's Annapolis, you know. It's very, <laughs> everybody's very important in Annapolis. It's well, like you know the difference what? between you know Anne Arundel County and. D.C. <laughs> uh, t- well, you know, I said to my wife, I said, I can't do this book. Nobody's talking to me because they got these ghost tours in town. But I went to all these inns and restaurants that had the ghosts on the ghost tour. I said, can you- I'd like to interview. We're not interested in being in your book. So I said to my wife, I don't think I'm going to get this book done. And then I started going to the archives and to the, uh, the, the you know old newspapers. My God, I'm finding better stuff than ghost stories about the lynching of a man uh, on the Christmas week. Imagine having a lynching. In the middle of town, not just you know any time, but the week of Christmas when everybody's getting ready. Yes, you know, that's what we Christmas. like when when people are really open-hearted and it's loving. Very amazing. I was just in shock. And then, as you said, um, the uh, St. John's College. I went to the public information officer there, and she was very helpful, as well, along with one or two of the folks there. And 
you know, they had a Whistler, they had sightings in the main old McDowell Hall, but the other thing was the whole town was used as infirmaries during the Civil War and the college was closed and students in later years were seeing, you know, women with red crosses on their uh, mm-hmm. long dresses. So, they, And then you have, once again, that link with history that made some reason for these possible apparitions. So that was neat. That was fun. It's fascinating. Are there any areas, let's say, in Annapolis or Baltimore that you've, like, tried to get something of significance about and you haven't been able to, but you get a sense that there's something more to it? I mean, I think for anybody that's a story hunter, you have to have some hunches. Um. Yeah, but at the same time, I found that there was so much in each town that you couldn't include everything mm-hmm. in, in you know one volume. You're limited by, to be frankly, you know the space available. Um, I have a sense that I really you know at some point want to go back and try to to go further because there are other stories that I couldn't get to in both places. None that I had a, a sense of there should be something there, but things I found in research that said, gee, if I could have had another two chapters. I would have included this or that in there, um, and that's that's the sense that I, you know, that's the. Yeah, you um, told some uh, great tales about Governor's Bridge, which is south of Route 50 on the. Sh- you said a short ride west of Annapolis. Share with our audience a few of those. Well, Governor's Bridge has been noted as a haunted site for years, and this brings up the connection with ghost stories and urban legends. The more contemporary stories that um, there's there's an urban legend called Crybaby Bridge. And that everybody thinks their town has Crybaby Bridge. Where's Crybaby? Oh, we have one in New Jersey. We have one in this town in Maryland, in Delaware. Everyone has a Crybaby Bridge. And the essence of the tale is a young girl takes her baby that she can't care for and throws it over the bridge. And, and it goes off and floats away and drowns. But then there's a the variation where she also jumps in afterwards to save it when it changes her mind. Uh, and that's, and then the, Payoff is if you go to that bridge at midnight, of course, on a Friday night under a full moon and, and honk your horn three times or flash your light, then the baby and the mother will come up and wail in the water. So that urban legend, you, you look on any state and numerous cities around the country, there it is. And where does it occur again? In Between Prince George's and Anne Arundel County, the connector is uh, Governor's Bridge on a really secluded, uh, eerie road, one lane, and... Um, supposed to be also used as a site for satanic cults and, and, and worship. And the street sign, or not the road sign, even has Satan sprayed on it in red paint. My, my sister saw the book, and she said, I took a can of paint out there and sprayed it myself. And I said, <laughs> I did not do that. It was there already. But um, anyway, so that's the essence of the local crybaby bridge. But because it's on Governor's Bridge Road, it's, it's in that area, it's labeled um, Governor's Bridge. So... And you can find similar instances that as well. There's the one about the tea party and riot along Quiet Spa Creek. <laughs> yeah, so sophisticated in Annapolis as you can, you know, <laughs> as get that well, you know, opinion. And uh, as I pointed out in the book, in Chestertown, well, after they had the tea party in Boston, they threw the tea over. Then they had one in Chestertown on the eastern shore, and they threw the tea party over. But in, Ball- in uh, Annapolis, they didn't just throw the tea over. They burnt the poor guy's ship as well. And then they went to his house and threatened to burn his house down. So they uh, they went to the extremes in Annapolis with that one. And then the guy left and went back to England. So, um, But I just thought that you know that was worthy of putting in. So the, the, that book has a bit more neat, unusual history rather than the um, 
traditional ghost stories, only because, it, you know, you got to get what comes to you and captures you, and that's how it turns right. out. Right. Well, I, I think in your Annapolis ghost books, you've talked about the Bryce House, Annapolis's <laughs> most haunted home. And I think when you look at all of sort of the the phenomena that goes on, whether the walking, the clanking of chains, I mean, knocking of doors, these these are like... That's the traditional sort of what an experiencer experiences, as well as feeling the presence of somebody or actually seeing them in their costume or, you know, hearing them say something or seeing the same thing at the same time of year. Well, and, and that's one of those things you asked before. Do you, do you get a sense something should be there? When you walk by the Bryce house, you say, that ought to be a haunted house, um, as you can see in certain parts of the country or, or the area, whatever state or country, some of these houses just stand out as being historic. This one goes back to 1767, oh, yeah. as you write. Right, and now it's a, it's an office for a, a major um, union um, um, organization, but the people in there certainly are in a historic place that is uh, all re- refurbished and fascinating inside, but the shell and, and the basement. They took me in the basement of this place, I'm telling you. It was great. I mean, <laughs> we're talking, you know, the stone walls, the dirt floors in areas. I mean, if you get a sense anywhere in the basement of this place, it, it's it. That was that's that's the fun of this sometimes to get in some of these old places that, you know, you can walk by or, or I guess, you know, folks who don't have the access or the ability get to do the walking tour of the sort of polished off, you know, right. reconstructed areas upstairs, and then. Behind those doors that look so nice, I mean, it's falling apart. Or not, I'm not talking about the Bryce House in particular, but some of these places, you know, um, the basements have been untouched for 50 or 70 years, and, and that's where the eerie, I'm sure the ghost hunters have a ball when they go into places like that. And well, you know, and I've, and I've watched some of the uh, satellite-carried programs on the paranormal, and, you know, I think the, the ones that come closest to dis- to showing you what it's really like is, uh, what is that man's name who talks to the people who have passed over? John Edwards? Mm-hmm. That one. And then there's another one called Psychic Detective, which is a variety of different women primarily around the country that work with the police. Yes. But so much of the Hollywood versions, I think, unfortunately, have really misled people into being so afraid and so fearful of what's around us all the time, but perhaps right. invisible to most people, versus knowing that it's really part of the human experience, part of our lives, and maybe if we were all clairvoyant all the time, we'd really see how crowded things are. But So um, God protects us, and it only comes some of the time. You mentioned something earlier about each of us having some sense of, of uh, being able to have this, but some people develop it over time. And um, I interviewed a psychic um, who worked with the police to, you know, on, on murder cases and things of that nature. She said she developed her ability because um, her father was assigned as a diplomat in the third world in Africa and Asia for many years. She didn't come back to the United States from the time she was two to about 20. Mm-hmm. She said no uh, immersion in, in high technology, right. in, you know, television, and that, she said, enabled her to have more of a sense of uh, being away from all that and having it... Uh, you know, sort of interfere with her ability to develop this. I think and that's true, that and good. I think that was- most psychics would say that, which is one of the concerns about kids who are always taking mm-hmm. in sort of noise right. uh, through their eyes and ears, that their nervous system is exhausted so that it's never quiet enough to actually 
feel with the parasympathetic nervous system. That's very true. Very so, true. Interesting. Well, look, we're going to take another little break, and then we'll okay. be back. Our guest is Ed Akonowitz. He is an author and publisher. Find out about his books, including Annapolis Ghosts, History, Mystery, Legends, and Lore. Don't go away. More to come after this, but find guest links and information at www.21stCenturyRadio.com. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Dr. PMH Atwater. I'm one of the original researchers in the field of near-death studies. done a lot with generations, new children, evolution, my newest book, Children of the Fifth World. And I've had the privilege and the great fun of being on 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zahara Hieronymus. And you know, she is just such a great interviewer. I absolutely love being on her show. She's smart. She's right there. She's quick. Who could ask for a better interviewer? You are lucky to just be listening. Have fun with this great lady. Thank you. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and this is 21st Century Radio. We've been doing this weekly interview show for over 30 years. Let's rejoin our guests now. So in your book, Haunted Maryland, there's these wonderful tales about the USS Constellation and the Opera House guest, Ghost, and, um, you know, Fort McHenry. Which of those do you think sort of people know about or don't know about? Um, gee, I don't know in terms of which they they tend to know about. I think that's a hard question. Um, I think that if people are interested in ghosts and the paranormal, they almost expect these old places to be haunted. I don't think they know the specifics of them and the length to which they might be. At uh, Fort McHenry, um, I remember one of the um, park rangers was a serious historian. His name is Scott Sheeds, and he's written several books about Baltimore, um, I think about six books of, of historical you know, topics of Baltimore. And he was at first hesitant to talk to me since he didn't really, you know, thrilled about talking to someone that writes about ghosts and folklore. And then came over and told me a story that had a historic correlation that really was good, and it was something that occurred in about 18 years ago when a woman told him, told him she saw a guy in a Civil War uniform uh, floating back and forth in front of the um, statue of Orpheus that stands outside the, the uh, you know, fort area on the grounds of Fort McHenry. And uh, it was floating back about 10, 15 feet in the air, and he put it in a file, and then he told me that uh, to take a look at his book. Right. And his book on Civil War, um, Baltimore and the Civil War, specified the details of an 1862 hanging at Fort McHenry where a soldier had killed his um, officer and was the first hanging at Fort McHenry, and the gallows was erected right at the spot where the Orpheus statue is now. So that guy would have been floating back and forth mm-hmm. about 10 or... Well, I think that's always what's so interesting is when the innocent sort of bystander experiences something and then you look in history and there's time and place related to their experience of place. Yeah, that was really satisfying to, to get that. I heard I, Bob and I used to do sort of ghost hunting for different people with psychics in the late Dorothy Bathgate. I remember we went to Fort McHenry and the late Nancy Stallings. Um, you know, that these were amazing um, people who would be able, and, and we could sense them as well and try to film them. And sometimes you'd get things on film or in photography, but the images wouldn't hold, which mm-hmm. is also another interesting phenomena. But I've been told that since they rewired certain areas of Fort McHenry, they're not having the same kind of um, hauntings. Um, I don't know about that, but I know that sometimes uh, national parks have a policy where they don't talk really about it. encourage it at all <laughs> either. Uh, 
you have better luck at state parks, really. At Gettysburg, for instance, the guides are told that they're not allowed to answer questions about ghosts, but if you get them after they're off duty, they'll end up talking to you. Oh, we so- did that once. Bob and I went up to Devil's Den and did some filming, and I can tell you, if you're quiet, you can hear the screams on that field. It's awful. Yeah, that's a that's a, a, a um, got an impressive and I guess emotional sight to to go to. No, and, um, and I think you know when the ground is saturated with blood, um, you know that's the life force of people, and it's in the soil, and sometimes their bones are there too, and so there's still a resonance of that soul. So there's no reason not to expect, I think, to see some sort of image of that soul's body. Um, one thing that the, the, one quick thing is, I don't think people realize how many lost graveyards there are and how many housing developments and mm-hmm. farms have been um, built over these places. Um, literally hundreds throughout each state, um, as much as maybe 100 to 150 per county in some populated areas of the East Coast, because when agribusiness came in and knocked down you know, these farm plots and when developers in the old days didn't have to move the graves, um, there are a significant number of lost cemeteries, um, forgotten cemeteries that are really built uh, or have been built over and uh, that's another reason for some of the activity in either even contemporary homes that people don't really have a sense of why is this happening you know um, right and and what i'd like to say to the audience is you know don't dismiss it and don't be afraid generally you know these beings are disincarnate humans and, you know, try to encourage them to move on to their loved ones on the other side. A lot of them, you know, they're still not, they don't know how to get out of this in-between state of, of between, you know, earth and right. heaven, or the heavens, I should mm-hmm. say, plural. So it's, it's important, you know, that it's, it's really not about fear. It should be more about love, because that's basically what they need to know, is that this isn't where they need to be anymore. Well, some of the activity is manifestation, some believe, of frustration on the part of these entities. Yeah. That they, they, you know, are in a, a sense of state of limbo. Um, I did come across one thing in, in writing the Haunted Maryland book. It's something that I, I, I always knew, but this man, Robert um, Montgomery, um, David Montgomery, put in words really well from the Washington Post. He said one of the biggest threats to um, ghost stories and folklore and the paranormal is, um, is overdevelopment. And I remember as a kid growing up, you know, there was always a, a, a decrepit old run-down house out in the edge of town on the country. But today there's no edge of town anymore. Today any slice of land is being turned into a new development or a strip mall. And with that, you know, um, the aura of these spooky little places and out-of-the-way nooks on the edge of town are, are really disappearing. And uh, that, I think, is, is threatening, you know, folklore and, and the, you know, the sort of eerie spot where you could go to when you were a kid and think that is the haunted house well global flooding will really put a kink in that too yeah, <laughs> a little chink in the armor of old place we're all going to be doing underwater ghost hunts we'll just Especially be visiting our old houses in maryland underwater mm-hmm. and and in terms of when you plan because i see how busy you are and how many book signings and speaking engagements you have are you already planning a new book i mean you've done a lot of books ed um Folks who, who um, asked me to do Haunted Maryland want me to do True Crime Maryland, and they're talking to me about that maybe for next year to finish it. Um, and then I did write a, a book that's out this Christmas. It's a Christmas novel. 
Um, it's a what-if book about um, what happens to a guy who's a regular firefighter who, who discovers the, the gold of the three kings and is, gets unlimited wealth and power to do good but can't help his own family. So that book is, is available now, and that's called Gold, Frankincense, and Myrrh. Um, and I'm really happy with that one, even though it's a great departure from the, the ghost story. No, it's lovely. I mean, you seem to be becoming a storyteller yourself. Gold, Frankincense, and Myrrh, a Christmas novel by Atlantic Books, right? Uh, no, but no it's Mr. your Lace. book. Mr. Lace, yes. I see. That's what, a place you're going to be speaking on yes, December 1st, right, yes, <laughs> at Atlantic Books. Right. And, and when we return just for a moment to Haunted Maryland, was there any story in particular that you want to share? I, I like the, the Phantom Flautist or flutist oh, that's in Western classic. Maryland. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. I talked to the museum curator up that way. Um, that that was a really great Christmas story too. You don't get many really good ghost Christmas stories, and it's the the story of a uh, a professor at uh, the college in Western Maryland. I've got to find which one it is now because I've, like you said, I sort of page one hundred nine. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, because I, I did get my homework. Correct. Get, get the correct college in there. Um, anyway, he ends up becoming a professor at this college at Saint, yeah, Mount St. Mary's, and his son is an amateur musician, and when the man dies, the professor dies, he had composed a Christmas tune, and the son goes up and plays the flute over his grave every year at Christmas or at Christmas Eve, and people in the area can hear the tune floating. So every year they would go and you know listen while he played his father's tune for him. That's really a neat story, but then... As he got older, this son had to be dragged up on a sled by the people in the town and play the tune. And, and now they say that he's passed away. The tune echoes over the valley. And I just I just thought that was a pretty story and a really neat one that's lasted for over 200 years. And well, you know, in many sacred traditions and in the Jewish tradition, it's the same on the anniversary called the Ark Site of a person's death. You go to their grave, and in many of the traditions, the Hasidic tradition, for instance, it's a time when you can ask the deceased rabbi or rabbi questions. And it's it's said that because it's at that time on the anniversary of a death, and when you hear ghost stories and hauntings, it's often on the anniversary mm-hmm. of the death of a person. The, the illumination of all that a person has done in the world occurs at the death. And so on the anniversary of the death, that it's like a window into time opens because the soul doesn't know time and so it it's still attracted to the last place it was and sometimes because the body hasn't decayed entirely and so there's still elements of itself that is earthbound and or they come because they know people will come at that time and it's when they too can make contact with their loved ones who are still living So, yeah, and and I think you'll find that in most all sacred societies, they actually have a reason for what they do and when they do it. And oftentimes it's for that continuity between the living and the dead, because we actually never die, just our bodies do. Look, we have time for probably one more story. Of course, we've covered Gravity Hill and Spook Hill in the past. Anything else you'd like to be sure we touch on before we say goodnight? Um. No, just just that, you know, it, the whole business of, of finding this these ghost stories is not for the sake only of 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 um, spooking people or, or or giving them some scary entertainment. It really is a way of preserving um, the culture and the history and the past, which is so important. And um, 
I think that's really, I don't think most people realize the importance that these ghost tales and folklore serve. And if if anything, in reading my books or the books of other people in in nearby states that do the same thing, a common comment afterwards is, uh, I picked up the books and and I really thought it was just going to be ghost stories and I learned a lot of history and that was really neat. And I think that encourages people to go and do a little more, you know, uh, visit some of these places that they might not have taken the time to do so. And I, I think that's a good purpose for this as opposed to just, you know, being spooky and entertaining. And right, and, and particularly to your books. I mean, you have done that, and I think that that's also one of the ways that we see that these stories do get handed down through an oral tradition, sometimes through newspapers. I like that one story about the Bible that can't be moved. Oh, yeah, the one in... Um, Shoal down in uh, just uh, just on the edge of the Delaware Maryland line, um, outside of Snow Hill. It's it's a, a great story that the Bible was cursed and that anybody who tried to take it out of the old church would not be able to because they lifted off of the pulpit and they tried to take it back to the rear of the church. And the farther they got from the altar, the heavier the book got. And some guys went in with a wheelbarrow and raced up, and the wheelbarrow crashed through the floor of the old church. And it just shows you some things have to stay where they are. Well, I want to thank you, Ed, for joining 21st Century Radio, and we'll be back in a moment.